Now, will you turn with me to Esther chapter 6? Esther chapter 6. We're beginning to read in verse 1, Esther, the book of Esther chapter 6. We want to consider tonight providential intervention. So, beginning in verse 1, just through verse 13. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of the memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, and which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And just thus far, may the Lord add to his blessing to the reading of his word. Providential intervention. Providence, God's providence, divine providence is defined, generally speaking, as God upholding and God governing all things. And all things means, of course, everything. Everything that exists. God upholds them, he keeps them. He sustains them, He rules them, He governs them, He controls them. That kind of understanding, which I think, of course, is the right biblical perspective on divine providence, eliminates any view that anybody might have of God as a God, for example, who stands far off and who views all events that transpire before Him from a great distance and just lets them get on with it, who remains largely 
uh, uninvolved. I dare say there are many people who would have a view of God like that, that there is a God, but He doesn't concern Himself with the affairs, the tiny affairs of human beings. He lets things get on and happen, and this is why we perhaps we have evil in the world and sin in the world, because these things happen. God is not actively hands-on involved in the world. It also eliminates the view of God acting only occasionally, or perhaps when God feels like it's necessary for him to get involved, because perhaps things are getting chaotic, or things are getting a little out of hand. Governing all things, when we say in the definition of divine providence, God governs all things, simply means that God controls everything. He controls which way a blade of grass bends in the wind, or which way a tree falls in a hurricane. God controls all things. When we say that He upholds all things, we mean that He maintains everything. We discover that as I've said many times, the book of Hebrews chapter 1 speaks of Jesus like that, who maintains all things by the word of His power. His word, His powerful word, because it has to be a powerful word simply to maintain everything. All things are all things. All things are everything. Things of no consequence. Things of minimal consequence. And things of maximum consequence. All things. So from the very least of things to the very greatest of things, God controls all things. And therefore, that's why we say that the activity of God and the actions of God are always an active thing and never a passive thing. God standing far off, God hands off, God not involved, whatever it might be. No, God is there, God is active, and so on. God is not like, you know, the bank manager who might want to come and peer over your shoulder and see if your accounts are in order and observe what he sees. No, God is not like that. He's not just an onlooker. He's not an observer. God is not idle. God is not uninvolved when we talk about God upholding and God controlling, maintaining all things. No, God is actively involved in every single thing that engages our lives. And that goes from our thought life to our conversation life, to our interactions with people, to our dealing with the world, uh, to buying a car, to buying your groceries, whatever it is, God is actively, sovereignly uh, involved in all of those things. So providence, while we might say God does care for us and God preserves us, which is absolutely true, providence is much deeper and much greater than just mere preservation of us and so on. It is personal. It's personal on an individual level. I mean, think of the, the web, if I can use that word, of all of our lives here tonight that, that, have, that began with our birth and on the, in this world and now have woven so many different paths and here we are. Our paths have come together. It's God who has done and orchestrated all of those things. The confessions all describe God's providence as holy and wise and good. That whatever God does is right and never wrong. Whatever God does is perfect and never imperfect. So that God can never make a mistake. God is always right. His foreknowledge is infallible and His foreordination is immutable. By infallible we mean He can never make a mistake. By immutable He can never change. So that the God who uh, portrays Himself, reveals Himself in Holy Scripture from Genesis onwards, 
as a reliable God is still the same God because he's unchangeable. And therefore, if a, a man like Abraham and Jacob can cast their entire lives upon him, their fragile lives, their uncertain lives upon him, and God deals with them and works with them, so too does he with us, same God, unchanged over all the millennia, over all the centuries. No deviations with God, no mistakes with God, perfect governance, beautiful governance, perfect harmonization of all things, because he is God. Good, sovereign, wise, holy, and so on. All events, and think of the thousands, or the millions, or the billions of events that have transpired. I dare say the events of our lives are in the millions, just us here tonight. Events that have, that have consequences, some less than others, and so on. But all the events of our lives, God intimately acquainted with every single aspect and every single one of them. God not being a puppet controller, like, you know, dangling the strings and goes this way and that way, but God intimately there standing with you, guiding, directing all things for His purpose, for His end. My responsibility and my accountability, and the same for you, yours, is to make sure that we line up with God, that we seek to know the will of God and the purpose of God for our lives, which, by the way, is not a difficult thing because here's the Word of God, and we can use the Word of God, and we can follow the Word of God, and we can know what God has for us. So I may hear of events around the world. Certain of my relatives and, and friends phoned me because of concern about the hurricane, because they heard of the event, or they saw the event on the news. They, they came to know it. But the one thing I know about all the events is that God ordained them. And they might ask, well, what is happening, or what are the results? It doesn't look good, it looks bad, and all of that. But God ordained all of the events, and continues even now, after the fact, to ordain, control, govern all, every single event that involves our lives. Everything that came into existence, everything that is in existence, everything that continues to exist, all under the hand of God. And when I say these things, of course, it's because I desire to elevate God above all others. Desire to give God all the glory and all the praise. And this is the only way we can do that. Because the moment you bring anything down or reduce anything or have questions about how God works and acts that you don't agree with, you reduce God and His glory. You reduce Him to your perspective, to our perspective, to our view. And then what kind of God do you have? Then you have a puppet that you control. Then you have a God that you can manipulate. But the thing is, the God of Scripture is not like that. It can never be manipulated. So by His foreordination, He has infallibly and immutably and His foreknowledge determined the beginning from the end and all things in between perfectly in perfect harmony. And Scripture tells us this about God. But what's interesting about what the Bible says about God is that, is that because God is above every other creature, because God is of course not a creature, He's not made, He's not created. He is, has existence in and of Himself. But because God is like that and who He is, the Bible records on a number of occasions the actual direct hand of God in human affairs. You know, sometimes as we were saying last week about the, the use of secondary means and contingencies, 
that God has ordained to bring about certain things. Sometimes God himself steps in and reveals himself in a very direct and a very personal way. And think, for example, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, they're just working in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. And that whole fiery furnace experience, ultimately, when we read the account in Scripture, reveals to us that God directly intervened and saved them. Or think about Daniel, right, in the lion's den. I mean, how do you explain that the lions sat purring the whole night with Daniel sleeping by them and did nothing to him? That is the direct intervention of God. There's no question. Because it's impossible otherwise, right? Because, as you know, when all the wise men, the bad guys, got chucked in, the lions just took them out. They didn't do that with Daniel because God was in the lion's den. And that's the direct intervention of God. Or think about Joseph in the pit, in the prison. And suddenly he gets a call from the palace. You're needed. Pharaoh wants to talk to you. How did that come about? I mean, all of his life has been a life of trial and and hardship and all of those things. His brothers hate him. They sold him into slavery. Even the Psalms the fact that he had chains around his neck and his, he was weeping and crying, asking for relief because he was just a boy. What are you doing to me? And they just sold him off and off he was sold to Potiphar and then misfalsely accused, as you remember, by Potiphar's wife, chucked into the pit and there he lies and there he is, forgotten. And yet in Potiphar's house and Pharaoh's prison, God is with that boy. Because the Bible says God was with him and blessed everything that his hand touched. And then he gets the call. I don't know if it was that kind of call, but he got, he got the call, right? Pharaoh wants to see you. And Pharaoh has that dream. And he reveals it to Joseph. I hear you can interpret dreams. What does Joseph say? Not me, but God. God will give you the interpretation. And then he just unfolds perfectly the interpretation of Joseph's dreams, right? And Pharaoh, obviously that Pharaoh was a very wise Pharaoh, said, How can, where will we find a guy, any other guy in my kingdom like this? You're the man. You're in charge. Just like that. Who did that? God. But look at the events that brought Joseph to the throne. They're tragic. And they're painful. And they're hard. And it's affliction. And life is like that. But God can intervene and do something sovereignly to change your life and my life completely. Perhaps the greatest example of this is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, who can be in a boat that is swamped by the storm and the sea and be fast asleep. And His disciples say, Master, Master, do you not care that we perish? Only for Jesus to get up and say, Peace, be still, and everything is quiet. In a second. Who is this who controls even the winds and the waves that they obey him? Or think about a leper coming to Jesus with hope in his heart because he's filthy and unclean and a cast off and rejected by his own people who must live outside the city in a despicable place with other lepers who comes to Jesus and asks Jesus, if you will, I can be cleansed. I will. And he touches him. Jesus touches the filthy, leprous man, which none of us would have done, would have stayed far far away. He touches him and says, I will be clean. 
Done. Done. That's the direct intervention of God. And so we have a revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ to Himself is God who can do these direct interventions. So we talk about, on the one hand, ordinary providence, and we talk about, on the other hand, extraordinary providences. And the ordinary providences of life happen every day. You might not even be aware of them until something just jogs your mind and you think about, ah, that was the Lord. Or it is an extraordinary event where you say without question, God was there and there's no other explanation to explain those kinds of things. In the one hand, you see that he uses means in ordinary providence. On the other, in extraordinary, he uses himself primarily to intervene in our lives. You remember that extraordinary story in 1 Kings chapter 22 when the prophet Micaiah uh, has been asked by King Ahab to you know, prophesy and tell me what's going to happen and Micaiah says, well today the Syrians are going to take you out. I'm, you know, I'm right, they're going to kill me today so Ahab makes all of his preparations to save his life, just in case Micaiah is right. He disguises himself, you remember, and even he has the help of King Jehoshaphat of Judah in the south, whom, whom he says to, please wear my robes. Now, if I was Jehoshaphat, I'd say, well, I'm not wearing your robes, you know. But Jehoshaphat went along, wore the robes of King Ahab, and all the Syrians chase King Jehoshaphat, because they think Jehoshaphat's Ahab. And they've been instructed to kill only Ahab. And of course, when Jehoshaphat cries out for help, they realize it's not Ahab and they stop chasing Jehoshaphat. And I suppose when you read that story, you can sense the frustration of a single Syrian bowman who just happens to be standing there, an archer in the army of the Syrians, who takes out an arrow, aims it randomly in the air and releases the arrow. And that arrow strikes King Ahab right between the greaves of his armor where there's a little gap and Ahab is mortally wounded dies because God said today it's extraordinary the intervention of God isn't it and so as we come to these great subjects we think about them this is what we can see here as we as we've been exploring and trying to understand the events of of what is going on in Persia, in Susa, in Esther's time. It says here, on the night, the, the night of the first feast that Esther gave in chapter 5, uh, that's how the end of chapter 5 is finished. Hey, Haman went home and he made preparations for gallows to be made to hang Mordecai on it. And verse 1 of chapter 6 says, on that night, the night Haman built the gallows, the night Haman had gone uh, gone back home after the feast and so on. On that night, it says that the king could not sleep and he desires, he gives orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles of all the, the glorious things that have transpired in Persia to be read to him. Perhaps he hopes the stories of all the heroic accounts that he reads in the memorable deeds because that's what they are in the Chronicles, would put him to sleep because he's been unable to sleep. Or perhaps he just wants to learn something more about his people and his country. Whichever it is, in that book of memorable deeds, you know, the scroll, unfold the scroll. Okay, read there for me. 
Then he happens to read whoever's reading to the king about Mordecai. Saving the king's life, right? You recall how back in Esther chapter 2, we read about what Mordecai did, how he heard about the plot to assassinate Xerxes. And uh, he told Esther, and Esther told the king. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles, the memorable deeds. And now, and at that time, of course, nothing was done. No reward was given. No recognition was given to Mordecai. He was passed over in silence. And Mordecai goes back to, the, to his work in the king's gate, perhaps as a scribe. And so he's ignored. But now you discover that Xerxes, on the night when he cannot sleep, desires to hear about memorable deeds and the scribe, perhaps just going through the pages or the scrolls, stops at what Mordecai did. How do you explain that? How do you explain such a thing? I mean, the, the Persian chronicles have got chronicles. Herodotus tells us they, 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 there's so many papyrus describing the, the great things. There's, there's thousands of them. Thousands of records. And here, of course, we should learn that God never ever overlooks anything and God never ever forgets anything and so Mordecai may have been overlooked in chapter 2 but you get the sense you can feel it now as you read that things are changing and it's not because of Xerxes it's just that he couldn't sleep and why couldn't he sleep on that night because of God right because of God and so the whole Doctrine in the Bible of the vengeance of God is predicated and built on the premise that God never forgets a slight to his own character and to his own name, nor does he forget ever a slight against his people. God never forgets that. Though his elect may cry out to him day and night, he hears them always, and he will speedily and soon deliver them. So God always honors, as it was said in First uh, Samuel, God always honors those who honor Him. And that is true. In fact, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes to those suffering, afflicted Thessalonian Christians, and he says to them, God considers it just or right to repay with affliction those who afflict you. You see, those who afflict us, they don't get away with that, because God never ignores that or forgets that. In fact, the proof of that will be on the day when the Lord Jesus comes, when the Bible says He comes with flaming fire, inflicting vengeance, number one, on those who do not know God, and number two, on those who do not obey the gospel. Think about that. How does Jesus come with flaming fire for the unbeliever, inflicting vengeance? And God is absolutely right, always in vengeance. That is why the scriptures say, leave it to God. Never take vengeance into your own hands. It is not your right or my right to repay or to give vengeance upon uh, anybody. That is the right and prerogative only of God, and He will deal and do those things whenever He does. So Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, he reads that Mordecai saved his life. He reads that Mordecai heard about this plot by Big Thana and Teresh to overthrow Xerxes. Or, as chapter 2 says, they wanted to lay hands on Xerxes. He heard about that and how Mordecai, he reads, overturned that assassination plot. And he immediately wants to know 
Well, what reward? What was done for Mordecai, right? Look at verse 3. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Why was it that Xerxes then could not sleep? Well, it wasn't all the wine from the feast, right? I mean, that would have been enough to knock anybody out, but not Xerxes. He was not. He was wide awake because of God, right? How do we account for it? It was God. In fact, the Septuagint version has a very striking statement. It says that the Lord kept sleep away from the king. Isn't that interesting? The Lord kept sleep away from the king. And how do we account for the desire by Xerxes to bring the book of memorable deeds and read to me from them? How do we account for that? Well, it's God, surely. It's only God. You see what mundane, simple events these are? I can't sleep, so I need to pass the time, so get the books Come and read to me some of the stories about what have been done that are memorable to me. Maybe that'll put me to sleep. Whatever it is, seemingly insignificant thing. I can't sleep tonight. But God is working, right? That's the point. So our understanding of divine sovereignty and our understanding of the providence of God, we say, excludes all coincidences. In other words, there's no such thing as chance. No such thing as an accident or fake. Uh, fate, all seeming coincidence that we might say look to be coincidences are swallowed up as secondary means because God has ordained them to be such. This is just a, having a high view of God. This is putting God on a level that is not like us. And that's where we always must put God and view God. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's, it's, not, it's the view that this God whom we say is like this, is directly intervening himself in the affairs of men to work out his own purposes and plans. Here it's using a king who's not a good king, a real pagan king, a wicked king, and God using him to bring about his purpose for a people, it would appear now, we begin to discover, an entire race of people, the Jewish people, all because Haman desired to destroy Mordecai because Mordecai wouldn't honor him, just ignored him. And so instead of just laying hands on Mordecai, he wants to destroy the people of Mordecai and then he gets Haman. I mean, he gets Mordecai. That's Haman's plan. So the writer of Esther is a remarkable writer. The more I read and study him, he has this, this incredible ability to, to develop suspense and then to relieve you of the suspense. You can start to see light at the end of the tunnel. He has this ability to develop catastrophe. He weaves this wonderful and marvelous interlude of possible relief and possible deliverance in events that are beyond human control. Now notice in verse 3 that just as Xerxes asks the question, whether Mordecai has been honored or not, and learns that nothing has been done. At that very moment, look at verse 4, it says, and the king said, who's in the court? Who's in the court? Now, <laughs> this is nighttime. Who would be in the court? But just, in, just in case someone has wandered in, doesn't matter who it is, who's in the court, right? At that very moment, Haman himself has arrived with his plan to destroy Mordecai. And that plan, by the way, is burning. 
in his mind and burning in his heart. It's the only thing that, that he's consumed by destroying Mordecai. So he's figured out a plan. He's got the gallows built at the advice of his wife and his friends, uh, 75 feet high. And now that he's built the gallows, he's off to Xerxes to tell him about the plan to destroy Mordecai. And you just get the feeling, hmm, it's not going to fly. It's just not going to work out that way, Haman. Because already we've read that Xerxes on that night could not sleep and had the book read to him. And there he reads about Mordecai. And now Xerxes has a plan. Haman has a plan. Men and women have plans. But God has a plan. And God has a purpose, right? So one commentator in looking at this says, says, calls this an exquisite collection of coincidences. An exquisite collection. Exquisite would be a good word, right? Because you sense that there's something beyond here. Another commentator says that this is arguably the most ironically comic scene in the entire Bible. So I'm not prepared to go one way and I'm not prepared to go the other way. Because I would just simply say this is God working. Just God demonstrating who He is on behalf of His people. God working on behalf. So here you have the plans of this pagan king Xerxes. In a single moment by hearing that Mordecai saved his life makes a plan to honor him. Which was not done in chapter 2. Now you know why it never happened in chapter 2. Because it happens in chapter 6. And you have the plans of Haman who has got Haman on his heart and mind and wishes to destroy him. So he's built the gallows. And they meet together, Xerxes and Haman. Who's in the court? Haman's in the court. <laughs> Haman has arrived to state his purpose, to state his plans, to have Mordecai hanged. Now, of course, Haman has no idea, right, that Xerxes has not been able to sleep, sleep and Xerxes just finished reading the book or having heard about what Mordecai did. He has no idea of that. Haman comes, Mordecai, I want to hang Mordecai on the gallows. And Xerxes is thinking, I want to elevate and magnify Mordecai for what he's done. I want to reward him. So you have these two plans. Two purposes that come together. When Xerxes hears, in verse 4, that Haman is in the court, the timing couldn't be better, right? I mean, the timing couldn't be better. This is the thing about God, right? In providence, providence is about time. It involves time. It's the weaving of time and events together in perfect union and harmony. And only God can control that. And so, the timing couldn't be better. We would say the timing is perfect. The timing is perfect. We use that phrase to describe many things where, well, I just, the timing was perfect. Not fate, not accident, not coincident, not chance, just the timing of God. Absolutely perfect. And here I think it's revealed to us that as believers we know this because we see God revealed to us in the Bible. It's such a tragedy to me or a tragic thing to me that there are many people who have no concept of the Bible, who have no understanding of the Bible. And I'm not speaking just necessarily about knowing precisely the gospel. I'm speaking about just knowing the Bible in general. You see the absolute ignorance of learned people, for instance, on a show like Jeopardy or whatever it might be, when they ask a Bible question. Simple Bible question that a five-year-old in Sunday school would know. And the people have got no idea. Never heard of it. 
I've heard some strange answers, and it's just mind-boggling to me. But I get it. They're not believers. The Bible is not in their life. There used to be a time in the history of our country when even a child knew the Bible and learned the Bible. That is no longer the case. The vast majority of adults, perhaps, in our country have no knowledge of Scripture. The basic stories of the Bible, nothing. Ignorant. Ignorant of God, and therefore ignorant of the ways and the works and the purposes and the mind of God. But when you read the Bible, that is only when you discover what God is like and what God does, how God acts. And you discover that the God from Genesis to Revelation, whenever He works and whenever He acts, He is absolutely, perfectly consistent with Himself. doesn't matter what book you read. Same God. Not a God getting better. Not a God learning. Not a God expanding His vast knowledge to be even vaster or greater. No, just the same God, absolutely perfect. Which is very encouraging and comforting to me that the God of... Enoch, or Abel, or Noah, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and Joshua, and Samuel, and David, and all the prophets, even Samson is our God. What a comfort, right? Same God. Same God. So Xerxes has his plan. Look at verse 6. He says, What should be done to the man whom the king delights, desires to honor? And Haman, verse 7, <laughs> he can think of no one else, right? He says to himself, end of verse 6, uh, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Right? Now, you know, I think that's a normal expectation from Haman's point of view, right? I mean, why? Because Haman's number two. In the country. Number two in the country. He really is number two. There's nobody else like him. He's been promoted and elevated and all of those things. Therefore, he believes that if any honor is to go, it should go to him. He deserves the honor. But, you know, the problem for Haman is he cannot ask for a promotion. Because he's number two. And there's only a number one above him. The king himself. So he can't ask for, I want the throne. I want to be the king. Now, I, I've, I've sensed in reading some commentators that they feel that that's what Haman is asking. I don't think Haman is asking that. No, Haman is second only to the king. He cannot have a higher authority than Xerxes. One of the things you discover about Haman, he actually has all the wealth that he needs. I mean, he's got, he's got so much wealth, right? He has all the glory and all the luxury that he needs. And it's true that having those kinds of things breeds the desire to have more of it, right? Persia, by nature, uh, apparently was an opulent, certainly Susa was an opulent city. And we can see that opulence, by the way, when you read chapter 1 of Esther. I mean, you remember in chapter 1 of Esther how Xerxes in verse 4 showed all the riches and the splendor of his glory in his kingdom. To all of his royal people and so on. The, the pomp of his greatness, the Bible says. And then it described, describes, you know, the, the party that the, that the people, the ordinary people were invited to. And this is how it describes it. Listen, listen to this description. These are the garden preparations for the feast that Xerxes provides in chapter 1. There are white cotton curtains with violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement 
of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. And there are drinking vessels of gold. I mean, what a party, right? What a display of riches and wealth. Haman is used to that. He's used to that kind of stuff. He's used to all the wealth. He has plenty of it. In fact, back in chapter 5, verse 11, Haman recounted, you remember, to his wife, all of his splendor and all of his power to his wife and his friends. So, for Haman to be honored by Xerxes, by the king, doesn't mean more riches for me. Doesn't mean more possessions. In fact, Haman actually gives, I think, quite a good definition of what it would mean for the king to honor someone that he delights in. That's verses 7 through 9. So look at verses 7 through 9. Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. He's thinking about himself, right? That's what I want. I want prestige. I want to be marched through the town square, and I want everybody to see me and hear the words that this is the man the king delights to honor more than all others. Notice his list of items, right? He wants royal robes that have actually been worn by the king. Not only that, but he wants the royal horse that the king has actually ridden. And he wants the royal crown that the king has worn. I mean, that's quite a recognition. You would have to, when you saw the person riding on the horse, being led through, robed like that and with a crown on his head, wow, that's, that's a kingly prestigious event. Now some might sense that this is a royal power grab, but I don't think that's what Haman is after. You just don't overthrow or make statements like he does here that insinuate, I want your position. You don't do that to Xerxes. Xerxes is too wise and too smart to deal with those kinds of things, and Haman would be taken out if he ever perceived that it was a royal power grab. Now, how would Haman read it? I mean, how would Xerxes read it? Well, he's just read, hasn't he, about the two eunuchs who tried to lay hands on him, and were, the plot was revealed by Mordecai, and this is what's on his heart, to give Mordecai recognition. And so, the account of Mordecai saving his life is what has developed the plan for Xerxes to honor Mordecai. And so, I don't read a veiled undercurrent by Haman here to take the throne. I don't think that's what it is, because if Xerxes, who was wise enough, he would certainly interpret it like that, and Haman's days would have been numbered. No, what I think Haman is doing is he's just further cementing his relationship with Xerxes. He's just putting himself in the public eye as the king's number two man, as the man above all other in Persia that the king delights to honor. On the other side of the equation, you know, there's this remarkable passage in 1 Samuel chapter 18 between Jonathan and David. And it's an incredible passage. In that passage, Jonathan, and this is many years before David will actually become king. In that passage, Jonathan takes off his royal robe and he puts it on David. And he takes off his belt with his sword and he puts it on David. 
And he gives David his armor and his bow as well. Now, if ever there was a transference of royal power, that was it. That was it. That's Jonathan recognizing way ahead of the time that this really is the man who should be king. And he's the prince. He's the heir apparent to his father, King Saul, to King Saul. But he recognizes that David, there's something about this man that's just different. How do you recognize such things like that? God. And Jonathan, what a remarkable individual he must have been, right? No, Haman, Haman is suggesting, I think, for, him, for himself, the cementing of this relationship, binding it even strong. If the king is honored and I'm honored, everybody in the kingdom will see that there is this relationship between us. Now, some people have suggested that the robes of the king, the bed of the king, the throne of the king, possessed and imparted magical powers. That's because Persia is pagan. Okay, So never forget that. We're talking about paganism. We're talking about dark magic. We're talking about all these Zoroastrianism and all of those kinds of religious ideas that pervade the Persian people and the Persian country. And don't forget, though everybody in the kingdom is Persian, not everybody is, may recognize themselves as Persian because Mordecai is a Jew and the Jews live in Persia and there are a lot of other countries and cultures that are in the Persian kingdom and fall under Persian rule, but they are individual cultures and races and so on. Find that in chapter 1 as well. Now Haman is simply planning his own ticker tape parade, isn't he? That's what he's doing. He's making plans for it. A royal noble even. The, the, the number, the best noble, right? Have him lead this man, thinking of himself, through the city, the town square, proclaiming his honor and so on. And he continues to believe, even though when he's stating this, that these are the things that I'm going to, they're going to happen to me, right? They will only apply to me. Who else could they apply to? Xerxes, I think, is absolutely delighted with the suggestion. Oh, that's, wow, that's fantastic. What a plan, Haman. He approves the plan immediately, right there and then. Yeah, that's great. So, Haman, I want you, delay no longer. You notice verse 10, hurry. Hurry. Leave here now and go and do all this for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the gate. I can only imagine Haman. Right? Can You can imagine. He's come with his plan. His plan is to assassinate or to have Mordecai hanged on his gallows. That's the plan. That's all that's in his mind. So now he's had a little side... He has to <laughs> consider Xerxes' little discussion, right, about the man whom he delights to honor. Okay, well, that'll be me, so no big deal. Still got my plan. And then Xerxes comes out with, go and do that. Honor this man, Mordecai the Jew. Shock, right? Totally unexpected response by Xerxes. So much so that <laughs> there is absolutely no way Haman can make the suggestion. Now, actually, I want to talk to you about Mordecai. Okay, that's not going to happen. This is not going to happen, right? Mordecai's safe, isn't he? He's safe from the gallows. There's no question about it, right? So Haman must honor the very object that he hates more than anything else. Now, I have no idea, because we're not told, how Mordecai got to, got to receive the news. And I have to say, I think it was Haman who went and told him, Mordecai, I, you need to wear this, and here's the horse, and you've you got to get on this horse, and I'm going to lead you through the city. Here's the crown, 
And I'm going to proclaim before you that you are the man the king delights to honor. Because the king said, hurry, do the very thing you have said. Do it now. So I, I don't know how Mordecai heard and I don't know how he responded. You know, Verse 11 simply says that Haman has fulfilled the command of Xerxes. <laughs> you don't mess around when the king says to you, go and do this now. He went and he did it now. But how mortified he must have been, right? Leading the horse, proclaiming that this is the man to honor. Everything that he has planned and purposed is falling away, falling to nothing. Now you notice that the writer, I don't have to tell you, because you can sense it when you read, that the writer is hinting at a possible demise for Haman, right? You just can't miss it. That he's suggesting things are not working out now for Haman, right? And the mantle of power has shifted. And how do you explain the shifting of this power? I, there's only one explanation. It's God who is shifting power. That teaches me that in all the nations of the world from all time, it is God who shifts power. So men and women can say together, can get together, and they can say, let us build a tower to God. Let us build a tower to the heavens. Let us proclaim ourselves as God. And God comes down and says, no way, and destroys it, and then scatters people with different languages so that they're really going to have a hard time understanding each other. Who did that? I mean, that goes back to Genesis chapter 10. That's God, right? God in nations, orchestrating all things for His glory. Now, you know, we confess, because it's right to confess that God is good. We confess that. We say that. And at the same time, we also confess that God planned the actual fall and ruin of Adam. We say that. God wasn't taken by surprise when Adam fell in the garden. God wasn't surprised when Eve took the fruit and ate of the tree. God was not surprised at all because God had purposed and planned such a thing. So that raises the question, how can a good God like that actually plan such an evil event? Sin. I like Gresham Machen. He has a great answer for this. This is the question, how much is embraced in the eternal purpose of God? And he says the answer the true answer is very simple. There's only one answer. Everything. Everything is embraced by the plan of God. Everything. Good, evil. Everything. All of it embraced by God. So that tells me it doesn't do me any good, right, to blame Adam for his lunacy. What made you eat? Right? Because, by the way, we raise that question often. Wow, well, you know... Why would Adam eat? Why did he do that? He knew. He shouldn't have done that, right? No, does no good to berate Adam for that because you would not have done any different. In fact, you and I would have done it sooner, right? Does no good to be incredulous at Adam or to be angry at God as if we can say, well, God, didn't you know ahead of time you were caught unawares? How could that be? Because if that were true, then you and I would be denying the omniscience of God, and therefore God would no longer be God. But the one thing you discover out of the fall of man is that God is still the same God, still unchanged, because He's God. Nor should we even think ever 
about God, who knows what's going to happen, that he did not and cannot foreordain ahead of time such events. Shouldn't think that he cannot. He does. Because if he cannot control those things, then you have a weak God, not the God of the Bible. Nor do we want a vacillating God, right? A changing of the mind God. Now, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm like to be consistent. At least I try to be. And I like others to be consistent. And if you come to me continually changing your mind, you know, I'm going to wonder about you. Okay? Because it's just how I am made. So if you say this today and that tomorrow and then something third on the third day and on the fourth day, well, I've got a better plan. And the fifth day, no, it's actually this. You keep doing that, changing your mind and say, you're actually unstable. You vacillate. You know, the good thing about God is not for one millisecond of a millisecond of a millisecond of a second does God ever vacillate, ever. He cannot. It's impossible. Because he's immutable. He's unchangeable. He can't do that. He cannot change. So God is not struggling to make up his mind about events. Ever. No, that's not God. All that that leaves us with then when you come to think about it, is the God that has revealed himself in the Bible. See, I think part of the problem that we all have is when we talk about these things, is we all want to know, well, how does man's freedom fit in? How does his freedom of will or freedom of choice fit into this whole thing? Now, just think about that for a moment. Here in, Exodus chapter, in Esther chapter 6, you have Xerxes making plans. And you have Haman making plans and they come together and you look at their freedom in making their plans they are absolutely free God is not coercing them God is not forcing them God is not stepping out of the shadows in the night and say oh Xerxes this is the plan or Haman now you got to do this right for evil no God is God is not doing that God is not coercing them at all not one of them no they all make their plans Xerxes to elevate Mordecai, Haman to destroy Mordecai. And yet we know, if we are biblical, that it is God who uses even our freedom of choice to accomplish what He has ordained. That's the simple answer. And you're still free when you make your choice. And God is still sovereign when He achieves His purpose through the choices that we've made. So just because we cannot comprehend what God does, which is, by the way, something we all want to try and do, comprehend how God works. Just because we cannot comprehend how God works does not mean that God doesn't do what He does. God's character and God's nature and the sovereignty of God all require two things, by the way, necessary things. They require, number one, saving faith. And number two, they require sanctifying faith. Because we live by faith. We come to Christ in faith initially, but then we progress from that day every day by faith. And so the nature of God and the character of God and God's sovereign purposes all require the necessity of being born again, of saving faith, and then a sanctifying faith from our perspective. A faith that believes that what cannot be seen or even understood is real. Which is exactly what the writer to the Hebrews says, right? Chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That's what faith is. Absolutely sure that the God of Scripture is the God of Scripture. Absolutely certain. 
can see God, but absolutely believe it. Because that's what faith is. And Abraham's life is the life of faith, isn't it? It's the preeminent life of faith. And how God intervened directly. Take your son. Offer him to me as a sacrifice. And as Abraham's about to kill Isaac, Abraham, now I know you fear God. That's the intervention of God. And Abraham lifts up his eyes and there's a ram caught in the thicket. That's the provision of God. Or Hagar, why are you weeping here and why is the boy over there? No, lift up your eyes and there's a well. Because God has plans for Ishmael and plans for Hagar. You go back to your mistress and you submit to her. Or Abraham sitting in the plains of Mamre and lifts up his eyes and three individuals are walking towards him. And he recognizes that of the three, one of them is God, who's come to visit. And he's even so disturbed by it that he says, let me, let me prepare something for you to eat, as if God needs to eat. But God has come. And God came, why? To tell him, I'm going to do two things. Number one, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And number two, Sarah, your wife, is going to have a son. Staggering stuff. God intervening, right, in the life of this. Yet look at the man's life. He has to live by faith. Well, God, you say I'm going to have a son. Okay. Well, I'm too old now. It's not possible. No, but God says, no, you are. So he believes. He believed against hope. And he was rewarded. All of the attempts of Abraham to bring about the purposes of God, Hagar, or, oh, that Ishmael might live before you, all of his attempts, no, it's not my purpose, Abraham, but God used all of those to achieve his final goal. You see, a hurricane is a force of nature, but at the same time, it's from the hand of God, he made it. So we recognize it as, as a natural event, weather, it's a natural event, yet we recognize God controls the weather. And so we have these two things together that reveal to us that the weather which everybody thinks is just weather that just happens, we know doesn't just happen. It's because of God. In other words, the results, the creation of it all and the results of it are in the hands of God. And you know the results are some perish and some live. And that's God. There's no other explanation. We cannot say that just because we are alive, right, that God had no end for those who died. No, God uses everything. Even the tragedies of life and the sorrows of life to accomplish His purpose for His glory. God's providence is in both life and death, frankly, is breathtaking. It's breathtaking. And so too in evil. God uses evil to bring about good. That's beyond my understanding, but He does it. He does it. God works for good, right? And that's what Christians believe and that's what we confess. Haman has had his humiliation royally handed to him by Xerxes, right? And now look at verse 12 and 13. He rushes home. He's mourning. He's grieving. He's got his head covered because all of his plans lie in ruins. And he can't go now to Xerxes and say, look, well, let me tell you about my plans to hang Mordecai. No, that's not going to happen. Even his wife and his friends and then his wise men recognize his downfall, right? Verse 13. And you notice now in verse 13 that the Jews, 
the Jewish people are spoken of in such a way, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, remember, Haman's plan was to destroy the Jewish people so that he could get Mordecai. And if Mordecai belongs to them and Mordecai is now elevated and honored and exalted, they are in a greater position. So let me give us some lessons. Number one, sin can never over, uh, be overcome except by redemption. Okay? The death of Jesus, the death of our Lord, does not make salvation probable and does not make salvation possible. It secures salvation. It guarantees our salvation. Because redemption is the glorious purpose of the Bible. So, though sin is there, and sin is necessary in order for redemption to occur, and therefore you can see that God can ordain sin in order to bring about redemption, His glory. It's a divine intervention, redemption. That's the cross. It's a divine intervention, right? Just as regeneration, the new birth, is a divine intervention. That's the first thing. The second is that God's processes often are ordinary, simple, and sometimes you might say even dull, ordinary. Because you know why? We always seem to want and demand the spectacular. It's just how we are, especially in America. All our plans, all our goals today, we need bigger and better things. In other words, I need faster Wi-Fi. Okay? I need large congregation. We need bigger ministries. What are these plans? I don't dispute that we shouldn't have goals, but never predispose God to any of your plans. You can never say, okay, look God, this is a good plan. Now, I think you'll agree with me it's a good plan, therefore you should be disposed to honor my good plan. But God doesn't work like that, right? Just because you think it's a good idea doesn't mean God is inclined in, the, in the, any way whatsoever to do what we say. Because you see, I think the thing about God is that He uses the ordinary things, the simple things of life, just as like He uses ordinary people, like you and me. Number three, faith always involves hardship. Okay? It always includes living with the tension of the sovereign purposes of God and my responsibility and accountability at the same time. And frankly, you come to realize when you're an adult, I think, that not all of life is pleasant. Right? Childhood may be, uh, may be much different, but I'm, and I'm sure today there are many children that have terrible childhoods. But generally, childhood is a, is a wonderful thing. But when you grow up, life is not so wonderful. And Christians have the great privilege of knowing God in the not-so-wonderful events of life. Number four, you must plan, and you must act, and you must commit then all your plans and acts to God. So you can have your plans, but give them to God. And let God make a determination. And I'm sure there are numerous occasions in your life and my life of the surprising providence of God, where you know it was God. And you look back and you say, it was only God. Nobody else could have done that. It was only God. And that's a great comfort to us. So divine intervention is the only reliable act of God in His providence, where He shows us that it could only have been God. That's Esther 6. All of these things could only have been of God. We see it in the Garden of Eden. 
We see it at the cross of Calvary. We see it in all of human history. And you see it in your own life. Demands two responses. Number one, submission. And number two, worship. Yes, Lord, I bow before you and I worship you. Because this, you are God. So we sang at the beginning, God is not dead, nor does God sleep. The wrong shall fail, and the right prevail, and there will be peace in our hearts, because it's God who does it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these thoughts from the book of Esther. We pray that you would impress upon our hearts these great truths that we might depend upon you more and more. That we might cast our lives, the very existence that we have that you give us, into your hands. That we might learn to walk in your ways by faith. That we might trust your word and believe in your word because you are God and you cannot lie. And you have made such great promises to us. So thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. We believe and confess them and acknowledge them to be ours because of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. Now, Father, we have a new week before us. What has gone behind us has left some tragedy and difficulty, and we've been part of that. We pray for all those who are suffering that you would help them. Pray that you'd undertake. We thank you for your sovereign purposes. We don't understand and cannot explain them all. We just acknowledge that you are God. So help us through this week and the new week to work for your glory and to bring pleasure to you. We ask these things now as we part. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. May the Lord bless you, give you a good week.